0: Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley.
1: I'm Lainey Mays. And I'm Grace Cananolo.
0: We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. We bring librarians and great books together. The new year brings new offerings from our podcast. The first episode of the month will have book presentations, author interviews, voicemails from librarians like you,
1: and more. And our mini episode halfway through the month features our Library Reads winners. Don't miss our winning authors' acceptance speeches.
0: Welcome and enjoy the show.
1: Book Buzz,
0: HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out.
1: Doo-doo-doo, doo-doo-doo. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought
0: to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, this is Virginia Stanley, director of library marketing at HarperCollins Publishers, and I have the honor of sitting down with author Kim Van Alkamada. She's the New York Times bestselling author of the historical novels Orphan Number 8 and Bachelor Girl. And now she is back with her new one, Counting Lost Stars, and it comes out July eighteenth, 2023. We can't be more excited to sit down and talk to her about it. Hi,
1: Kim. Hi, Virginia. Thank you so much for talking to me and and taking the time to do this. Oh yeah, we go back, Kim. Harper yeah. Collins published Orphan Number 8, which was uh, published to great acclaim.
0: And this book is so, uh, so meaty and so wonderful, and uh, you learn a lot in this book, mm. and you're taken away on this, this incredible story, so why don't you tell everybody a little bit about it.
1: So, yeah, Counting Lost Stars, it's dual time periods. Um, we have one time period during World War II, so we're dealing with topics of the Holocaust and focus mostly on the Netherlands, but the other time period is 1960s New York City. It all happens in one summer, in actually about six weeks in the summer of 1960, and I really like juxtaposing those two time periods. One of the things I think when I read history and learn about history is how it's still so present. There are so many things that um, are so connected to what we think about and and the decisions we make today so i really like taking something from the 1940s and connecting it to the 1960s what the story is about is young woman in 1960s new york city she's in college to learn computer programming when she becomes pregnant kicked out of college and she's just given up her baby for adoption when she meets a dutch holocaust survivor who's searching for his lost mother and her name's Rita, when she learns that the Holocaust was organized using punch card computer technology, which was true, she decides to try to use her knowledge to help her friend Jacob find out what happened to his mother, because that the uncertainty is just a torment to him, and she, she's falling in love with him, and she, she wants to put his mind at ease. And her search takes her back to the 1940s story, where we meet Cornelia, who's working at the Dutch agency that's using punch card computers to conduct a census and um, kind of make those lists of all the Jewish people in the Netherlands. Um, in the Netherlands, even though the public was fairly tolerant religiously, they were so efficient, with, uh, especially with computer technology and in the census department, that they actually had a higher... Um, proportion of their population was murdered in the Holocaust than any other Western European country. So Counting Lost Stars brings together these two stories and these two um, situations in history. And uh, you're pretty far in the book until you see exactly how they're going to go together. And it was really fun to write that and uh, structure it. I really enjoyed that part of it.
0: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible, and uh, you learn, as you say, you learn so much in this book. I mean, I I learned a lot uh, from this book. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the 60s, going back to mm-hmm. the 60s, and uh, Rita, and, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, the unwed mothers mm. having to, you know, sort of make up um, Excuses where they're going, and they're going to these homes for unwed mm-hmm. mothers that are affiliated with adoption agencies. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, nev- nev- once those babies are gone, they're gone, and it's mm-hmm. closed. And mm-hmm. and there just seems to be a lot of um, sadly parallels mm-hmm. to what's going on today with lack of rights. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I thought that, that was very. I mean, there's so much in the book that is mm-hmm. so interesting and so compelling, but that struck such a chord mm-hmm. with me. Chocolate?
1: Yeah, they uh, actually, they call this era in the United States after World War II up to Roe versus Wade, although now maybe we've uh, hop, skip, jumped over yep. that again. Uh, they call it the baby scoop era. And so it was a time when there was uh, more sexual freedom, but birth control was illegal if unless you were married until uh, I think Griswold, Connecticut. I don't remember the year, 1968 maybe? Wow. I'm probably wrong about that. Um, and, you know, abortion is illegal, and so many women would become pregnant. And it, all the shame was on them and their families. And I thought a lot about my mom's family. My mom was married when she was 19, had me when she was 20, hung on to me. But she had a good friend from high school who went away senior year of high school uh, to give up her baby for adoption, came back, and they never talked about it again. And that was really typical. And I thought a lot about my grandparents, my mom's family. My grandparents, they were newly middle class. You know, one generation back, they were, like, Lower East Side, practically, and, um, so hanging on to that kind of middle class respectability was really important and i think it felt really tenuous for many families and so this this shame of uh, a daughter becoming pregnant and having uh, an illegitimate baby it, it triggered so much in these families. And um, the daughters were often, sometimes they were put in the backseat of a car and driven away at midnight by their parents so nobody would see. And yes, they're going to visit a sick aunt or they're going away for some reason. And that there was a whole system, like you said, affiliated with adoption agencies So in some ways, it was like a supply and demand. Because on the other hand, you have all these American families in the 1950s and 60s wanting to be the kind of like television nuclear family. And of course, not everyone is able to bear children. And so that had its own shame. And kind of the solution was you scoop up all the babies from these unmarried young women and adopt them to, you know, straight married couples and that was better for everyone. Um, But not every young woman was making that choice really wholeheartedly, there was a lot of pressure. And one thing that I learned from Ann Fessler's book, The Girls Who Went Away, was a big inspiration for me here. And um, she did interviews with a lot of women who had given up babies for adoption during this era. There was kind of a script that the social workers would use, and they actually would research it sort of from a psychological perspective. How do you convince someone, a young woman, to give up her baby if she doesn't want to? Mm -hmm. And um, there were a lot of techniques and, and kind of psychological techniques and arguments that were deployed. And so when I read this book of interviews with women, it was very repetitive because that same argument, those same techniques were used over and over. And like you said, the adoptions were closed. And the whole idea is everybody's supposed to forget it ever happened. But you don't forget these things, right. you know. Right. And so in, in this novel, Rita is just at that point. She's just come back from the unwed mother's home. And in six weeks, her uh, social worker is going to come for a follow-up visit and to have her sign a final paper, and everything in the 1960s part of the novel happens in those six weeks. hmm
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And then it's so interesting to see
0: the, the back and forth mm-hmm. and, um, and then her friendship that mm-hmm. blossoms and more uh, with Jacob. Um, so um, you know, I, I also found it fascinating. We had spoken um, earlier about uh, your um, inspiration for mm-hmm. Rita was this photograph that you had shown us mm-hmm. of a bunch of men in a class mm-hmm. learning how to do punch guard, basically mm-hmm. computer programming exactly. in a strange way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and she was, there was one woman. Mm-hmm. And so I love that, that that you may, you, you, there was
1: your Rita. Mm-hmm. Yes. Love that. Yeah. Um, in some ways, my own parents kind of gave me some infri- inspiration for the characters. My mom's name is Rita, mm-hmm. and this character is not her. It's not her experience, but she let me use her name because it gave me, like, access to this young woman in the 1960s. My mom worked as a secretary in the Empire State Building. But yeah, at Barnard College in 1959 was the first year that women studying mathematics could choose computing machines as like a, a focus. And on the campus at Columbia University, there's, it's still there, the Watson Laboratory, which was set up by IBM, um, to teach computer programming and computer applications to researchers, to military people. They would do a six-week summer class. Maybe it was a three-week summer class for teachers to kind of introduce what is this technology. And, yeah, that's how you did programming. Um, A a punch card is like like an index card with little holes in it, and the computer makes electronic connections wherever there's a hole. And that little electronic connection goes to a wire that's plugged into a circuit panel. And so in the picture you're talking about, the, the teacher is at this big chalkboard, and there's a diagram of a control panel and the connections between one circuit and the next, that is the program. And so that's what Rita is learning. And I also learned that in this slightly more rudimentary way, that's the computer technology that was used during the Holocaust to conduct census. Um, The United States used that technology to do our own census collecting, but um, also to organize the concentration camp system and that's what made it so terrifyingly efficient. Yeah. I mean, really, if you think about this, this uh,
0: discovery, this creation, this, you know, great thought that went into this process and then used for good and used for not mm-hmm. so good. Um, mm-hmm. But um, can you talk a little bit about, since we're here at the mm-hmm. American Library Association, um, can you talk a little bit about your research? Mm-hmm. And
1: did libraries play a role in that research?
0: Absolutely.
1: So I started my two main nonfiction book inspirations, the Ann Fessler book, The Girls Who Went Away, and also um, a book by Edwin Black called IBM and the Holocaust. So it's not a secret that IBM computer technology was really common in Europe the 1930s, and Hitler really loved it. He, in fact, Hitler gave a medal to Thomas Watson, the owner of IBM, uh, something he had a hard time living down once we went to war with Germany. But there are all these great connections. And in Edwin Black's book, he really details this. So that's the main um, nonfiction inspirations. But then uh, there are certain things I wanted to learn more about, especially from archival libraries. So my last research before the COVID lockdown was I went to Barnard College to the archives at the library there, and I got out their um, catalogs, their course catalogs from 1959, 1958. And I could see which classes would you have to take to be a math major. Um, I could see the computing techn- the computing machines. Um, I used their maps of the campus. Uh, so that kind of archival research, it, it gives you a sense of a time and a place from that moment, you know. Um, another thing, Edwin Black mentioned in the book, there's a couple of sentences about a... a German Jew who was in the Netherlands ended up at Westerbork and then at Bergen-Belsen. And at Bergen-Belsen, he was assigned to the labor office where he worked with the computer. Most, of, all the big concentration camps had computers, and they would, each prisoner had a punch card. And so they would use them, say, one of the businesses that was using slave labor said, we need 50 people who know how to do metalworking. You take the stack of punch cards, run it through the computer, and select everybody who has metalworking as an occupation, and you get a list. So he documented this. His name was uh, Rudolf Keim. And after the war, very soon after his liberation, he typed, hand-typed an entire memoir. It's in German. I had some help with some translation from another researcher who was working at the Erlsen archives in, in Germany. And he describes everything. And he actually saved a card, one of the punch cards, as an example. Um, so there are times in the book, early in the book, I kind of have to make up some things because I don't know everything. Um, so when you see Cornelia working at the punch cards, with the punch cards in Holland, Uh, I kind of had to make up some of these codes to explain the story. But there's a scene later in the book where they have punch cards from Bergen-Belsen and they're trying to find out what happened to Jacob's mother. And all those codes are real from that archive and his memoir is at the center for jewish history as part of the yivo archive so those kind of resources and archival research are really important and then just general library sources interlibrary loan uh google is great but it's not everything and to do historical fiction you really need libraries well that's uh that's so true, and the, and the book has
0: uh, is so authentically written it's a mm-hmm. it's a very, very powerful mm-hmm. compelling book, as I say. Uh, you know, the reader learns a lot and you're swept away in the story and mm-hmm. these characters, um, but all of the research that you've put into this is it's, it's it's quite clear and um, and as you say you're in that moment mm-hmm. you know the feeling the smell the mm. the time the tight the tightness of the air mm. there's everything you can feel it you know and so mm. um, I. I I can't wait. Uh, we are here at the American Library Association. we have been signing copies. <laughs> um, we're getting this out, and you're about to speak at um, United for Libraries Tea, and more,
1: more librarians will hear this story, but because of this podcast, even more librarians oh, will hear about Oh, I'm story. so grateful for this opportunity. I think, I really think it's a great book for libraries. A lot of people love to read historical fiction. Exactly what you said, you're swept up in a story, but you're learning things. And um, there's a lot to discuss, and a lot of libraries run book clubs, and uh, I think it's appropriate for younger adults as well, like high school and especially college. The main characters are 19 years old when the story is open, and they're having to make really hard, brave decisions at a very young age. Yeah. I, I admire; they're braver than I am. Well, I don't know. You took on quite a
0: quite a story here. Uh, uh, it's a huge responsibility to tell mm. this story, and. You tell it so beautifully, and I think it honors so many people. Well, thank you so much, Virginia. Thank you, Kim. It's Counting Lost Stars by Kim Ben-Alcamada, and it is out on July 18th. Thanks, Kim. Thank you so
1: much. Okay.
0: Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest, on Instagram and TikTok at Harper Library, And you can always give us a call and leave us a message. You might end up on the show. That number is 212-207-7773. Be sure to rate and review us and share the show with a friend. Until next time.